0: Hello and welcome back once again to the HR Social Hour Half Hour Podcast. This is episode 166, John and Wendy talk to Perry Timms. I'm your host, John.
1: And I'm Wendy. How are you today, John?
0: Wendy, I am well. It is hard to believe we are at the end of this amazing British invasion, United Kingdom month and experience (laughs) that we've had. I, I think you'll agree with me that we've had just a tremendous time I can't think of a better guest to have to wrap this month up. Yes. But it's been so much fun. It's been fun to record at different times and Mm -hmm. do things a little differently. But I think it's been some tremendous conversations, and I know people have gotten a lot of value out of them for sure.
1: Oh, for sure. I think I've learned a lot. um, And, you know, and we've said it before, but it's nice to see that people are people wherever we are.
0: That's right. That's right. And while it's hard to believe it is at the end of April, May, we've got some great things going on. I wanted to mention very quickly that May 12, I'm going to be taking part in a panel with friend of the show and previous guest Jason Troy as part of HR Now. (laughs) They've got an exclamation point there. So I'm assuming I'm supposed to have that kind of enthusiasm. I am very excited, though, to to be working with Jason on that event and and taking part in that panel. There are going to be links in the show notes to register for HR Now. They've got two days of events going on, May 11 and May 12. I'm going to be taking part in the event May 12. You'll see my my happy face on, on the on the lake. <laughs> Jason had reached out to me and said, hey, he's going to be a keynote. And so this is a panel happening the next day. Wendy, I, I'm excited. I know you've got some things coming up. We're going to be sharing over the next yep. many weeks. It's nice though, that after a period of doldrums, for lack of a better word, between, <laughs> you know, obviously the pay core event we've got going on and now yeah. HR Now, I, I'm excited that we are starting to do some other stuff again.
1: Yeah, it's nice to be able to get out and um, and share information um, in a different way. Um, and hopefully maybe, maybe later this fall, we'll be able to be there in person. You never know. Fingers crossed. Never know. never know. We
0: are cautiously, so we can see you. Yes. Cautiously optimistic, (laughs) as I like to say, cautiously optimistic. Well, again, we'll have links for HR now. Maybe not as excited there, but (laughs) I'm looking forward to, to being with them Perry's name has come up several times lately is when we've asked who have you gotten to know, like you got to talk to Perry and Perry's this and and feel like we've known Perry for a long time. I'm excited. We're finally getting a chance to visit with him today let's go forward.
1: Super excited to welcome Perry Timms to the show this morning. He is the founder and chief energy officer of PTHR, a micro but global consultancy setting out to create better business for a better world. He is an international and two-time TEDx speaker and award-winning writer on the future of work, HR, and learning. He wrote a book in 2017 called Transformational HR, and it was named one of the top 100 business strategy books of all time. And his second book, The Energized Workplace, was published in August 2020 and was shortlisted for the UK Business Book of the Year in 2021. Perry's work is influenced by human-centered design and systems thinking plus agile, inclusive and autonomous Ways of working that enhance personal fulfillment and organizational effectiveness. Well, Perry, welcome to the show. Again, we are so excited to finally have you here. Um, our first question is What is in your glass today?
2: Well, uh, so thank you for the invite. It is genuinely an excitable thing for me to be on here. So um, if we had HR now, you've got the HR. Wow. Uh, so, <laughs> so, yeah, I'll begin by, by um, uh, saying what's in my glass. So in, in a drinking context, <laughs> I'm into compostable coffee pods for my Nespresso. They have seen oh. me through lockdown. And then if we're talking about something slightly more adult, uh, then you'll be pleased to know that my favorite drink is a Kentucky bourbon called Buffalo Chase um, so yeah I, I'm, a, I, I'm a big fan of that kind of thing but if you're talking about generally in my life what's in my class then I think what I'm up to with clients and with collaborators and partners is we are looking at that post-pandemic world and we are going there is no going back there is a red line and we want to see something good coming from the huge social experiment that is lockdown and all the new variables in the world of work so yeah drinking that and and then life and the glass of life at that.
1: I love you gave us the whole answer. Like every possible answer we got from Perry <laughs> today.
0: Perry, you will be happy to know. So I am a native of Kentucky. And my first job in HR, I used to staff Buffalo Trace distillery. We used to place temps over there in the during the holidays to load in bourbon that they had wrapped with Christmas papers and what have you. We had two guys decide to steal a fifth at lunchtime got soused that was the end of their careers with us and with buffalo trace in that line i'm actually a makers mark ambassador and i've actually got several other people a previous guests on the show people in the hr community we've got them to sign up nice. for a. Uh, which if you're not familiar with that you ought to check it out I because will. you get your name on a barrel nice man if you're ever in kentucky when the bottles when the barrel's done you can dip your own bottle Wow! wow, wow. so pretty cool <laughs> I've made a note already, John, thank you. (laughs) We'll talk more offline about that. (laughs) So now we certainly know what you're up to now. Yeah. How exactly did you get your start in human resources?
2: I, uh, I didn't go to university, I jumped into the workforce after two extended years uh, at uh, what I guess you'd call kind of high school in, in your world. Um, and I joined the UK civil service. And so I was in administration and line management. But in the early 1990s, you can probably remember there was a big push to start to efficiency drive and centralise work. So I got involved in lots of projects that we call business re-engineering. And of course, that led into technology. So I worked on those projects. But the bit that really brought me to life was when the system was ready to roll and they needed somebody to train the users. And I was the person who had followed the system all the way through. So I trained the users. And then I thought, hang on, in my younger days, I quite like the thought of being a teacher and I get to do it, but with adults about something very deliberate and very, I guess you'd say sort of opportunity led. And that got me into the HR sort of bug. I was really lucky because I was mentored by an HR director in the organization I worked in. And we were talking about career changes, uh, and I just said, look, I'm really drawn to this kind of learning and development stuff. She said, well, that's really interesting because I've got a vacancy. So I applied and got the job, and uh, that was 2003. And so, um, you know, I'm just about in my sort of 18th year of in uh, HR. But genuinely, I absolutely love it. I mean, there is no part of the business world where you get to look under every rock into every kind of system and scenario and understand this dynamic between people, process and purpose. I mean, it's just a gift. So, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm not budging from this world. Uh, so I kind of found it, uh, but I am probably one of its biggest cheerleaders.
1: Now you are the chief energy officer, which I love that title, um, of People and Transformational HR, which obviously you founded. Tell us why you decided to start your own company and the mission of PTHR.
2: Yeah, so so I think the mission evolves. So I'll come to that. Uh, in my corporate life, uh, towards the end of it, I worked in a nonprofit, and I was in organization design and talent development. And and I guess there's a, sort of a, almost like a peak when you hit where you can't really do any more with the same organization. And so my antidote to that was I can't be any more creative, so I'll just keep piling in more work and just broaden horizons. And I found myself completely burnt out. So I thought, you know, I need something new. So so I left and stepped out and I went into freelancing, having worked with a number of freelancers and thought, I quite like the variability of it. And it was a big risk. And so the mission emerged because my original sense was that I'd help people with org design and talent development, Uh, but actually it was the height of social media here in the UK and I'd been quite an early adopter. And so people said, hey, can you help us with this for internal social media or employer brand stuff? And so I ended up doing that, but I realized that social media worked really well when the organization had a sociability to it anyway, and if it didn't, it didn't work very well. And so I started to think, how, how have organizations become so mechanistic and not sociable places? And so I wanted to know more about the system side of things. So, yeah, so I guess I sort of moved into much more of the, um, I suppose we'd now call it agile. Agile, responsive, free-flowing, fluid, um, those kinds of systems. So, you know, if you know anything about people like Spotify and and people like that, that whole sense of swarming to problems, solving them in in groups uh, and then reassembling somewhere else, that whole sense of a fluid organization excited me. And that's where I've kind of specialized, I guess, the nature of what we do. And I believe that's the recipe to create better circumstances at work so people are fulfilled in what they do because of the variation, the choice, the agency, the inclusion, the creativity, the pace. All the things are exciting about work. So I guess I'm trying to recalibrate the machine.
0: Carry, let's talk a bit more about agile HR. and we, we hear that term a lot. I think it's something that's kind of come up over the last several years. It seems like every so often we get an influx of new terms. But Agile is something we've heard a lot more about over the last several years. You do a lot of speaking and work around that concept. We may have some listeners that, that hear it and are like, I don't really quite understand. I know you started to talk a little bit about it with your Spotify example, but talk a little bit more about what Agile HR is, what it entails. And then for those that are, are this is an Agile 101 conversation, mm-hmm. You know, what materials or, or what would you point to to say if you want to learn more, these are really good resources for that?
2: So I think HR has been renowned for being a stabilizer, for being a kind of bureaucratic force for consistency. And that seems to fly in the face of Agile, which is about responsiveness and about iterations and only planning so far ahead. So I've always been intrigued at why HR is quite so fixed in that in that way. And I think partly it's down to practice and routine and partly it's about organizations using HR as a risk management function, not a human creative sort of um, um, enabler. So, uh, so the agile side of things, I think, uh, in HR comes particularly in its project work. That's what we're finding, where there's a start, a middle and an end, where there's a problem to solve. And in fact, where there's a product to build. Now, HR doesn't often talk about the things it does as products. You know, they're not consumable. You don't have to pay for them. But there is a kind of user journey. There are sets of features there. Are, there is an outcome you want to create. So Agile talks to all of those. So in the Agile cycle of developing a requirement specification in how you create the task list to do that and how you then plan in stages that are smaller and and can be adapted, um, that's where I think the beauty really, really comes in. And I've kind of got a fusion, I suppose, of that agile principle of ceremonies and rituals, of smaller bursts of activity, very inclusive, very creative, but still aligned to risk and governance and outcomes with the whole concept of self-managed and fluid organisations, as I talked about. It's almost like they are the human spirit and the um, methodology kind of combined. And so that's why we work in that way, because actually what I found is HR people seem to get a sense of liberation when they can work in this agile way, because it's like, oh my goodness, I don't have to follow a very predictable routine. I can be creative and experimental and test things and create small... Um, prototypes. And so I think that's where it's starting to gain some real traction, because I think the problems are so complex in the world of work now. There is no one truth to what you need to build and do. And I mean, you probably know Lars Schmidt's work on redefining HR. And in it, he talks about playbooks, not policies. It's that kind of talk I love, because that's a more agile version of HR. Agile, can help practitioners in projects but i think it can also become an ethos in the way um, we work so recruitment campaigns could be run in agile sprints uh, change management can be broken down into agile stages org design can be delivered in prototype experiments and options analysis so i think it's got a really strong fit and i almost think it's wasted on the techies right i think it's like there's too much humanity in it <laughs> it's not it's not just <laughs> the coding yes yeah, so and i think that's where it uh, that where it goes in terms of who to look up uh, and what to um, enrich yourself with as a listener if you're thinking, how do I do this Agile HR thing? I mean, some of the classic places to start are people like Jeff Sutherland's Scrum book because it really gets you into the whole break things down cycles and really strongly creative bursts. But there are some books deliberately built for this. So um, Natal Dank, who's an Aussie, and Rina Hellstrom, who's from Finland, have written a book called Agile HR. And quite literally, it's the playbook. For everything from employer brand through to exit interviews delivered in an agile way. Lars talks about some of this in Redefining HR because I wrote it. So, so that's in there. <laughs> um, and then you've got um, a fantastic piece on uh, self managed organizations by a Canadian called Samantha Slade called Going Horizontal. And it just talks about how you have all these flat, nimble teams. So there's plenty out there. There are no what I would call real curriculums, although Natal and Rina do run a qualification program. Um, But as you said, it's, it's more prominent.
1: Part of being agile is we are starting to reopen from COVID. People are starting to move back and forth and all of that. What do you think the biggest challenge HR pros will be dealing with over the next year?
2: Wow. I mean, as I said, I think the, uh, the backlog of tasks on that is huge, right? So, um, and it's variable. So I think we've discovered an awful lot through the pandemic about a kind of balanced life and the whole nature of commuting and remote working and inclusion and presenteeism, well-being particularly. I think a lot of people would jump to the well-being answer and they'd say, look, we're coming out of a pandemic. There's all sorts of new anxieties. We've got to focus on well-being. And I don't want to dismiss that. But I think our big ticket is org design, because I don't think we are tinkering with an organisation post pandemic. I think we've almost got to start again and think, hang on, what are we all about? How do we do what we do? What choices can people make that are, I guess, both bureaucratically sensible and humanist in, in their choice dynamic? So I think this is Quite, quite literally, like the reset in the Avengers uh, story, you know, the big reset. So straight after that. So <laughs> I get really, really dismayed when people talk about back to normal. I'm like, what do you think it was that good? Really? Seriously? Do you think it was like, because it, it wasn't. And I think we can erase some of that and start again with a not quite fresh palette, but I think a fairly clean red line that we don't want to cross. So all designed for me, that's the crucial thing. And the, key thing i think in hr's favour is that the business does not have the answers yet so i think we need to work with them to help them create the answers so it's not like we can work to a brief i think we've got to co-create the brief with them so org design that's my big ticket
0: perry we've heard several times in these in these conversations over the last month that a lot of hr in the uk being very administrative i'm wondering with these ideas of org design and agile and all these things that you do what, what kind of challenges do you have against that base? What the norm, like we just want to go back to the way things were. Is that as prevalent as we heard? I, I think Wendy would agree with me. What we've heard a lot of is there is a lot of very state, I guess state or we. I may call trench HR compliance,
2: compliance, compliance, check in boxes. Is that a fair assessment? I think so. Yeah, I think so. And uh, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is because, you know, we've got good at it. So we know it. So we stick to it. It's almost like it's our little stable base that we don't want to deny. And, and there are a lot of sensible ways that we need to hold on to that. Don't get me wrong. But HR isn't there as a nanny. You know, it's not a childminder. It is helping adults realise their true potential. And you don't do that by keep bringing in more rules and more policies and more guidance you build that playbook that Lars talks about. You set principles with people and you are adaptive and responsive to, I guess, the sciences we're seeing about how people work in teams and groups and in leadership roles. So I I think we've got to grow out of that a little bit, but we use science and data And our strength of relationship building in order to do that. Now, that takes intent, though. So those people who are very comfortable in the current bureaucracy, I think they're the ones who are going to possibly be a little bit more concerned about this shift. I think we've got it in us, though, because the COVID-19 responses I've seen in HR practitioners in the UK have been nothing short of heroic. They have literally reinvented themselves in the space of hours. They have become the chief executive's most closest confidant in safety and keeping the lights on in the business. And I think we need to say, hey, we've proven we can adapt. We've proven we can dislodge our fixation on policies. So we keep that in mind. And then we recognize if we're a bit light on capability, we very quickly learn our way into some of these things. And we start to assemble the org design principles. We start to bring the science. We start to put our arms around our business analysts in, in our workplaces and go, hey, come help me out. Give me some people data. Give me some performance data. Give me some forecasting if we adapt and change to more remote working. Uh, so we don't have to do it alone but I think we've got to break out a little bit of our self-imposed kind of modesty and comfort zones. Difficult, not impossible at all.
0: One of the things that we've gotten to do and really enjoy over the last many months is crowdsource questions. Wendy told people we were giving things up. We haven't given all of way, but (laughs) I particularly appreciate some of what your brethren and sister in there in the United Kingdom have brought to us. And Amanda Cookson asks, what's the marketplace trend that excites you the most?
2: I try and pay a lot of attention to marketplace trends. I try and pay a lot of attention to so quite broad sciences and economic stuff that I don't know enough about, but I'm curious enough to want to assemble some thoughts. Now, now the answer for me on that is a concept called values-based consumerism. Now, what I mean by that is that people don't just vote with convenience or they don't vote with brand loyalty necessarily. They are thinking, I have values. Does the company who provides this product or service have values that are in line with that? And that may be charitable, uh, environmental, you know, so think Patagonia, right? Uh, you think, if I want outdoor apparel, Patagonia stand for all the things I value of charitable nature, inclusiveness, friendliness to their teams. You know, they donate millions on Black Friday. That values-based consumerism for me really starts to tug at the Business Roundtable's declaration in 2019 that it isn't about shareholder value. It is stakeholder value, multiple Stakeholders. The the small company that I'm part of, we've got our B Corporation uh, accreditation pending, and it's that that excites the heck out of me because I think if more companies can stand in the space of good and the values based consumerism drives them to the top of the food chain in terms of sales and reputation and and loyalty in that way, that I think is how we can sometimes uh, somehow turn the ship around quite literally on extractive, destructive capitalism to much more generous and uh, regenerative capitalism. So that market trend is the one I'm really, really excited by.
1: But Perry, it is now time for everyone's favorite part of our show, the half hour question connection. What career did you dream of having when you were a child?
2: Wow. So I was asked this actually on a radio show this week, and so I can give you the rehearsed answer. I did start to um, like the idea of being a veterinary surgeon, but then I realised that also involved euthanasia for animals. I couldn't do it. So uh, my attention was drawn to teaching or journalism, and because of the learning and the writing side of things that I still enjoy now. But then teaching involves kids, and they're not always that helpful um, in behaviour. And journalism, I don't know about you, but like the gutter press in the UK is just despicable. I didn't want to be part of that. So uh, yeah, so that's what I wanted to be. And I guess in some slight twist of fate, I think I've kind of manifested a bit of the teaching and a bit of the journalism in a way that I'm very comfortable with. Who's one person you've gained in your network in the last year that you think more people should know? He's a Brit. Uh, Bruce Daisley ex-Twitter VP in Europe, and now independent podcaster, writer, and assembler of great insight. So his podcast is called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. It is just a mine of supercharged information about right now. He's really good at helping us project into the future, but starting from a point of what's going on now. So Bruce Stainsley, I would say, is the edition of the year.
1: How do you maintain balance?
2: I often think that when people look at like my work schedule and my kind of always on nature, uh, I think they they think I must be on some kind of um, substance, but I'm not. I guess I have uh, learnt to uh, develop a sense of my energy and my rhythm. And there's a discipline that comes with that. And when I researched the second book and started to look into the realms of chakras and vibrations and energy in that sense, it all seemed to make sense to me. I'm like, wow, that's, that's, that's just put names to sensations that I'm having. So as an example, if I've got an important piece of work and I'm struggling at the end of the day to get it done, do you know what? I shut the lid and then I flip uh, over to um, maybe watching a bit of Marvel um, in universe uh, or some music or something. And I just kind of think, look, I'm no good to myself like this, but then I'll have a really early rise because I've just got this sense of accomplishment that I need. So, yes, yeah, so I think I, I've rewired, I suppose, how I um, judge myself and therefore I can balance and feel quite guilt free if I'm not up to the work but also knowing that I've got some kind of creative ways of compensating for that by early starts and and writing things down and sketching and just trying to free the mind a bit. So that, I think, is how I create plans.
0: Perry, how do you enjoy giving back to the HR community?
2: Oh, See, I mean, you've just tapped into something that that really does give me a sense of joy. And um, Adam Grant's give and take uh, kind of metaphor springs to mind here. So I'm a giver. I like to lift people up because that lifts me up so when I write, I don't just write because I'm making sense in my own mind. I want to write and publish something on a blog because I think other people will go, oh, that's useful. That's got me thinking. I'm going to ta- uh, start taking some of those principles on or have my own view on this. So, so blog uh, pieces, uh, most definitely. Um, and I think the other thing that really helps me is that I'm a little bit addicted to mentoring. So if I get somebody come across my um, sort of network, If they ask, or even if they don't ask uh, quite often, that'll come into the conversation. Um, I absolutely love it. I mean, there's something about giving away everything, you know, which is really fulfilling for you, but my goodness, you learn so much by mentoring other people. People say, how do you get the time to do this? I'm like, how would I know things about work and attitudes and lived experience if I didn't bring these people's lives into a very intimate conversation so I can see their vantage point. I just enriches me all the time. So again, I feel like I gain <laughs> from everything I give um, it just makes me want to give more
1: what is your favorite movie
2: now I love getting asked this question because I have a very British movie so in the 1960s in the UK um there were two youth cults uh, one was the kind of motorbike riding, leather clad rockers who were into Gene Vinson and that kind of stuff. And then there were these Italian suited mods who liked American jazz and soul music and rode Italian uh, scooter bikes. And so the film is Quadrophenia and it's built from a rock opera that The Who recorded in the 1970s about four facets of personality of this angst filled teenager discovering himself in this youth cult my goodness me i can watch that thing time and again and it's from 1979 so it hit me when i was like 12 years old so you can imagine how impressionable i was um yeah it's a fantastic film it's uh, if you ever get the chance to watch it you'll understand a lot about british culture in the 60s from that how about the first concert you remember attending hey so it's, it's linked to that because there's a group called the jam uh, Paul Weller Bruce Foxton Rick Buckler so a trio uh, they came out of the punk era and were influenced by the sort of mod stuff that I was talking about and it was 1980 I can remember it very vividly in um, a city called Leicester in the Midlands of England in a pretty rundown venue but I mean the whole experience was just it, it was a really dark room the music was Piercingly loud when when you are 13 years of old age and you get to go to a big concert like that full of adults, man, that's memorable. So yeah, 1980, The Jam.
1: What was the last show that you binge watched?
2: Now your um, American producers will be pleased about this because I got <laughs> totally hooked into the West world series so mm-hmm. my oh. last binge was west world um series 3 which has taken it to a whole new level of human and uh, i guess you'd say robot combat uh yeah but a fascinating look into the future i mean i love it
0: have you ever seen the original movie yeah with your Brynner. Yeah. yeah such a <laughs> iconic thing right <laughs> and I, I have to tell you well as much as i enjoy quadrophenia i'm actually a bigger fan of tommy that movie is And Margaret's Women in the Baked Beans is bananas, like just bananas. (laughs) (laughs) Totally right, yeah.
2: What is a hobby or a thing you really like to do, Perry, that may surprise people? Uh, Some people won't be surprised by this, but maybe some of the listeners will, particularly because I'm from the UK, is that since 1985, I've been absolutely obsessed with the NFL. I have watched the last 32 Super Bowls live. Now, this is what might surprise people. My adopted team is the Detroit Lions, and they're not very good. They are not very good. Bless them. Uh, wow. So yeah. So I've got my 81 Megatron shirt in the uh, in the wardrobe. Uh, why Detroit Lions, people might say. Why not Patriots because of the New England bit or, or, you know, Miami Dolphins and whatever. Anyway, so... It goes to my musical heritage. I absolutely love Motown and 1960s soul music, and a lot of that came from Detroit. So I wanted to kind of keep it. So I like the Red Wings too, and I like the Pistons. Um, I don't really follow the Tigers much, but I always keep an eye out for the Detroit-based um, sport teams. But yeah, I absolutely love the NFL.
0: How did you find that? First, get involved? Then you know, obviously, and we know that the NFL has. Yeah. Tried to expand with the yeah. World League and come, yeah. you know, come into come into the England and what have you. Mm. How did
2: you get hooked up in 1985 mm. to become such a? So, fan? if you remember the state of soccer in the 1980s, um, I don't. I'm sorry. Well. <laughs> well <laughs> just in case you don't then, um, there was this kind of plague called hooliganism where fans would fight yeah, each other. Sure. Yeah. And, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I mean, I loved soccer, football, soccer, um, but it really spoilt it for me. And then uh, the UK, there was a kind of a magazine program that had just started on one of our channels highlighting the NFL. So this is all pre-internet days, of course. Uh, and, and I was just intrigued by it. I didn't understand the rules. I used to play rugby. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, this stuff is it's like strategy and muscle meets finesse and, and skill. And I just I just loved everything about it. So. I mean there's a funny story actually I, I spoke at a conference in Kansas City and I managed to get a ticket to go and see the Chiefs play the Bills this was 2003 so it was Marty Schottenheimer and Marv Levy as coaches and I sat right up in the high seats and I sat with some KC fans and we had a competition because I was British um, who could call the right play so whether it was a, <laughs> <was> a full <laughs> burst or yeah, whatever anyway I, I won I called the most accurate plays including a Tony Gonzalez Flea Flea a touchdown. Uh, I didn't call the flea flicker, but I called it that Gonzalez would score. Anyway, so yeah, I, I'm absolutely into it, like like you wouldn't believe. So um, I often quote Vince Lombardi and stuff like that. Yeah, amazed by it.
0: Now I, I have to ask then. So you've been to KC. Hmm. They know how to tailgate too. Uh, Hopefully, you got to experience that. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Have you been able to attend
2: a game in Detroit or wherever they no field or wherever they play? However, in Wembley, I have. So when they came over to play the Falcons, yeah, I got um, tickets to see that, and it was brilliant because it was a last-minute field goal that was um, uh, missed, and then there was a flag flown because there was an infringement, and they took the kick again. (laughs) <laughs> and then the Lions won. Yeah. I mean, it was just we couldn't, we couldn't write it. Right. And so That's there awful. I was very proudly on the tubes and stuff in London with my Calvin Johnson shirt on. And people were kind of smugly going, oh, his team won. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. So I have seen them, but not in Detroit. I've been to um, a couple of the Wembley games and I did go to a college game. Actually, I have a business contact who lived in Iowa. So I went to see the Hawkeyes. They know how to do it there oh my too. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jeez, tailgate's, yeah, I could uh, I could live that way.
1: <laughs> my husband actually worked in Michigan when they built Ford Field and Ooh. so he got to he was uh, in journalism at the time and got to go onto the field as they were building it and all of that. He's been to quite a few he's a Vikings fan, so. Ah, oh, um,
2: their rivalry there, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but if they're not playing the Vikings, we're usually cheering for Detroit because nice. we like a good
2: underdog. Story. Yeah, good. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> and that's a British thing too, right? Underdog, so I'm kind of comfortable with it. Yeah,
1: Perry, what is the biggest misconception people have about the UK?
2: I thought long and hard uh, about the thought of um, UKism and so on. And I think I've got a good answer for you, actually. So I think most people think that we're super patriotic. We literally drape ourselves in the union flag. We're royalists and, you know, all sorts of, uh, no, we're not really at all. I think actually they're, there is a divide though so um, it's a bit sad in some respects but equally I see a new sense of not necessarily just belonging to that history but actually wanting to belong to a more worldly kind of perspective so I think people would think we are all like I say beer swelling tea drinking flag wearing Morris dancers and we're not Um, I think there's an enormous amount of progressive inclusive and very much sort of wanting to be a citizen of the world Um, so yeah I I think that would surprise a lot of people. We have heard that more than once mm-hmm. this month,
0: not necessarily framed exactly the same way, but certainly the, the amount of culture and things that are out there and that not, we, we know not everybody knows the queen and we know not everybody loves in London. <laughs> and the food is not, the food is not as bad as people make it out to be. No. We've learned, we've learned several things. sure. As we mentioned, we are crowdsourcing questions. So our last question for you is if you could ask, the next guest of the podcast, a question, what would it be?
2: I've got a big thought in my mind. um, And so it's possibly a bit too big, but I'd probably be asking, how do they think we would start to do this? And I think it's this economic disparity, right? I'm really taxed by the 1% billionaire wealth, 99% everybody else. And uh, I find that both vulgar and ridiculous. And it's almost like, how would they start to address a balanced position when it comes to wealth and opportunity. Um, It's a big question, though, isn't it? Even just one positive move towards a bit more parity, I think I'd be really keen to know what somebody would think about that. I mean, I suppose, you know, if I was asked a question, I would give the example of Dan Price in um, Seattle, who gave all his people $70,000 and said, let's all earn the same. I'm thinking what a genius idea! I mean, their profits are like you know six x or something now, so I think we've got to see some economic trend bucking uh, so if they've got an idea to you know kind of buck a trend in even one way, i'd love to know what that is. We are going to add that perry i didn't
0: I did never imagine that the most NFL talk ever on the h r social hour would be an episode with one of our friends <laughs> in the United Kingdom. <laughs> So I I can't thank you enough for that. This has been just an amazing way to end this entire month of conversations uh, with folks there with you. I know that some of our guests may not be connected. They're going to want to get connected with you now. Best way for them to reach
2: you out there. So LinkedIn, there's only one of me on LinkedIn. So that's really easy. But I'm also on Twitter at Perry Tims. I got there fairly early. So my name is my Twitter handle. And I'm quite happy on any of those channels for people to reach out and connect because, yeah, it's all about the, um, the positivity that comes from those new connections. Love it. We will have both those in the show
0: notes. And then, Wendy, how about you? Best way for listeners to find you out there?
1: Uh, best way, as always, is on my blog, MyDailyJourney.com. Daily is D as in dog, A-I-L-E-Y. And, of course, the second and fourth Sundays of each month, you will find me on Twitter as part of our twice-monthly Twitter chat at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. How about you, John?
0: JohnThurman.com for all things John Thurman. And for the show, HR hrsocialhourpodcast.podbean.com. Listen, review, follow. Whatever, whatever platform you're on, follow. That way you know you're going to get these shows every week, be it if it's our friends in the United Kingdom or next door in Richmond or in South Dakota, or wherever it is globally. And that leads me into this. International listeners, you've heard an entire month of international guests. We're very serious in that we would love to talk to you too. Perry will tell you this was fairly painless, I'd like to think. <laughs> and we can work with schedules. We, I think the, Wendy and I can agree the, the time zone differences are the most challenging, but the conversations have been so much fun. I know I've learned a lot personally, not only about what's going on in our business, but a lot about our misconceptions of the UK, which I have to admit, I probably had a few of them too. Please contact us and let's have those conversations. Perry, again, appreciate you helping us wrap up this amazing month. And so for the HR Social Hour Half Hour podcast, I'm John.
1: And I'm Wendy. And as always, be sure to connect,
0: give back, and network. Network. Take care, everybody.
1: We'll see you soon.